Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. So when I was in middle school, uh, my dad took my little brother and I on a very special trip. Um, I'm one of eight kids, and so having time with just me and my brother and my dad was like, this never happens. This is such a special thing. And so he, he took us, and we had, I don't remember if it was a work trip or if my brother or I had a sports thing. I think maybe my brother had a gymnastics thing, but regardless, it was just me and my little brother, Peter, and my dad, and um, he, like, spoiled us. Like, we went to, um, we went and played uh, mini golf for the afternoon. We got a very healthy pizza dinner, and um, afterwards, this, you know, this whole afternoon of time together and doing all these fun things. Do you know what I said? I said, can we go get ice cream? <laughs> And I, maybe that would have been okay, depending on how I asked, but I asked kind of like whiny, like, come on, dad, let's go get ice cream. But the biggest problem was, up to that point, throughout that day, I'd never said, thank you. Isn't it interesting how certain, certain mistakes, or when we do something wrong, it can actually feel like a bigger deal depending on the context. And here's what I mean, right? To, to not be grateful... That's kind of always wrong, but it's a bigger deal in the context of something like that, right? Like, my dad just did all these special things, and then being ungrateful after that, like, that feels like a bigger deal, you know what I mean? Um, there's other things like that, like a kid stealing money from the parents on their birthday after their parents gave them gifts. Does that make sense? It was like, stealing's always wrong, but in that context, it's even worse. Like, what are you doing? Like, your parents just spent money on you. And you're taking something from them. Or how about this? Imagine someone gets married, and during their honeymoon, one of the partners commits adultery on the other. Right? Adultery is always wrong, but there's a sense of like, on the honeymoon? Really? Why I give that example is because that is probably the closest example we can get to what happened between the people of Israel and God in this chapter we're going to look at. What happens, and to catch you guys up, for those of you who haven't been here, kids, I know you haven't been following along. So, so we're following the people of Israel. They've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God has brought them out through Moses. There's the 10 plagues I know you guys have heard about in Sunday school. Uh, they cross the Red Sea. They go through the wilderness. They go to this place called Mount Sinai. And it's amazing because God comes down to the top of the mountain and God speaks with Moses and he gives Moses, what does he give Moses? You guys remember? Ten commandments. Yeah, ten commandments. God gives Moses the ten commandments and he tells the people what God's will is and the people say, we will do it. We promise to obey and they make this covenant agreement. Again, the closest parallel we have is, is a marriage. They make this covenant agreement with God saying, we will be your people. We will follow these rules. 
And Moses goes back on the mountain. And what's happening on the mountain is he's receiving the instructions for the tabernacle. And we looked at last week and kind of summarized these five chapters of instructions for the tabernacle. And the basic idea is this, that the tabernacle is supposed to be a portable Mount Sinai. God still wants to be with his people even as they leave this place. And so everything that that happened on the mountain, they, they put into this tent so that the people can still be with God. And here's the tragedy we're going to read about. While Moses is on the mountain getting instructions for all this so that God can keep being with his people, people at the bottom of the mountain break the first three of the Ten Commandments. They make this golden calf and they bow down and worship to it and says, this is your God. Idolatry is the word for this. They make an object of worship and worship it as God in the place of God. And do you see, like, why this is so extra bad? Idolatry is always bad, but, like, seriously, you're at the foot of the mountain. It's covered in smoke. Moses is right there talking with God. And now you're committing idolatry. And so, I mean, one of the questions that comes up in this passage is, like, why would the people do this? What's wrong with them? We're going to talk about that in a minute. But also... How does Moses respond to all of this? And what does that have to teach us for how we should respond when people we love in our lives go astray or hurt us or hurt others in, in terrible ways? And so let's, let's pick up the story and let's read some of this. Uh, Exodus chapter 32. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to, to find this spot. Exodus chapter 32. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to be skipping around some verses in Exodus 32 through 34 today and tracing what happens while Moses is receiving these instructions, what's happening with the people? Here's what's happening. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. <laughs> so funny. He's up on the mountain. <laughs> but no, we don't know what happened. what's happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Now, now pause. There's, there's a subnote of tragedy here. Because this is the gold that the people of Israel received from the Egyptians. Do you remember that when they left Egypt? And what it was supposed to be used for was the construction of the tabernacle and the ark. This way in which God was going to continue to be with his people. That's what it was for. And they take that gold. And then they took the gold from off their ears, brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them and fashioned with an engraving tool and made it into an image of a calf, a young cow. And then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to Yahweh tomorrow. So first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, do not make images of anything to worship them as God. And third commandment, regard my name as holy. Set it apart. See, they're breaking the first three commandments all right here at the bottom of the mountain. And early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Now, we're going to talk more about this and break it down. But before we do, 
Again, I'll, I'll, many people, when they read this passage, think, like, this is insane. God did all these miracles in Egypt, brought them out, and for us, there's a measure of distance here, right? I don't know, I don't personally know anyone who has been tempted to make themselves an image of something and worship him and pretend that's God. I mean, maybe some of you know people like that. I've, I've never met anyone that that's their struggle. And so for us, we read this and we're like, they're so dumb. <laughs> like, you're going to make this image and say that that's Yahweh and worship it. Like, what, what, is, the, what is the draw here? Like, how could you so quickly turn away from this God and worship something else? Here's one piece of an answer, okay? The, the, one of the fundamental things about idolatry is that it's the temptation to uh, worship something visible in place of the invisible God. It's to worship something that's more visible or tangible than God is often for us. And the truth is, uh, I think this still happens today. We just do it in different ways. These are just several idols. We could have listed out a hundred of them. I think we still have idols today. We just have different ones. And I don't know anyone who makes an image and bows down to them, but I know plenty of people who worship the God of more. If I just had that boat, once I pay off the house, that'll, that'll be enough. Do you see what's going on in our hearts? It's the temptation to find contentment in something visible and tangible instead of in the invisible and often intangible God. That's what happens. So accumulation, getting more, God of greed and more and wealth and stuff. And this can be true of you whether you have a lot of stuff, whether you're very wealthy or whether you're very poor. Either way, this still can be a temptation to find your identity and look for satisfaction and more. Acclamation. <laughs> right? <laughs> Applause. Goddess of praise and fame. When I grow up, I just want to be rich and famous. Why? Why do you want that? There's something in us that is tempted to seek people's praise over God's acceptance. Isn't there? It's the temptation to look for something visible and tangible in place of God's often invisible and intangible praise and acceptance of us. Or accomplishment, the God of greatness, recognition. I do something really important with my life. Again, we could go on and list all kinds of other things. Uh, but I love this quote from John D. Rockefeller. It, it kind of gets at that heart of uh, the God of accumulation, but I think it actually works for all of these. Uh, John D. Rock, Rockefeller was, was a tycoon, very, very wealthy in his day. And when asked, um, how much money is enough? He famously replied, just a little bit more. But I think that lies at the heart of any form of idolatry. How much praise and recognition and approval from people is enough for you? If something in your heart says, just a little bit more, that's our form of idolatry today. And so I just want to pause and be honest because it's easy to read this and be like, they are so ridiculous. And yet, it's very likely that some of us in here 
during some course of what's happened this morning, in your heart of hearts, you've shifted from, I love God and I want to put him first, to, if only I had that. Any of us can still slip into idolatry today. None of us are beyond that. They did it in a very different way than we do today, but we still struggle with this today, don't we? And so, one of the first things I want you to consider as we look at this passage is, what is this for you? Is it the God of accumulation, God of praise, acclamation, or accomplishment? Where in your heart are you most tempted to look for something besides God? And maybe it would be appropriate to go to him and just confess that openly and honestly, to come to the altar like we just sang, to leave behind your regrets and mistakes and to lay those before him. So they turn away from God. They commit idolatry. And again, it's like adultery on the honeymoon. That's what it's like. And you have, to, you, have to, you have to feel the drama of the story, okay? The story is that God has rescued his people out of Israel, not just because of his goodness, but also because he wants them to be his people and he wants to be with them. And all these instructions for the tabernacle are for a purpose, so God could be with the people. And now the people have broken the covenant. And the question, like if you're hearing this for the first time, the question you're wondering is like, is this done? Is this over? Looks like it, seems like it. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. This is an ancient metaphor for being really stubborn and not willing to change your ways. Think of an animal that you're trying to guide. That's the image. They're stiff-necked. They won't turn the way I want them to turn. They keep going the same direction away from me. Now leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. What? God's like, it's over. Then, Moses, I'll make you into a great nation. How about that, Moses? But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? See what Moses is doing? God, remember, this is your people. Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Do you see what Moses is doing? He's reminding God of his whole purpose in doing this whole thing. God, you said you want to bring this people out not just for them, but for the sake of the nations so people would see this and know how great and good you are. Turn from your fierce anger, God, and re- re- relent concerning this disaster planned. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit forever. This is the great promise to Abraham. He's referencing So the Lord relented concerning the disaster that he had said he would bring on his people. This is weird, isn't it? Moses is the gracious one and God is the angry one. (laughs) What do we do with this? I want you to hold on to that question. We're going to talk about it more uh, later in the message, this dynamic between God and how he speaks to Moses in this account. But for now, what I want you to see is this. This is, this is how the story reads. 
is that it would have been all over if it weren't for Moses. Saying, God, remember, don't do this. Don't treat this people as they deserve. Instead, treat them with grace. Would you please? And God does, and he relents, mostly. The following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. I'm going to go back up to the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. Maybe there's a way I can make this right. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh God, these people have committed grave sin. As if God didn't know that already. God told Moses on the mountain. Right? <laughs> They've made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you've written. Number me with the people, God. As you're going to treat them, treat me. Don't start over with me. If you're going to reject them, reject me too. And the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Now go, Moses. Lead the place. Lead the people to the place I told you about. And, and see, it's interesting here because there's, there's mercy already at this point. God's saying, okay, I won't destroy the people. I won't start over. Moses, lead the people. I will still send them into the promised land. The, my angel will go before you and protect you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. And here's the tragic part. Basically, God says, I, I'm, I'm going to go with, or I'm going to send the people still. They're still going to go to the promised land, but here is the devastating judgment. Exodus 33.3. This is like the somber tone in the music. Like the, oh no. God says, go up to this land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you because you're a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. <laughs> wow. How does God feel about the people right now? But this is a tragedy. The whole book has been building to God, being with his people, going with them into the promised land. And now God says, go ahead, go in the promised land, but I cannot go with you because you've broken the covenant. You committed the equivalent of adultery on the honeymoon. We can't just pretend this didn't happen. And the people, what happens next is they just freak out and cry. So this is the verdict, the tragic verdict. The people have broken the covenant. God graciously still promises to protect them, to bring them into the promised land, but he's not going to go with them. And just pause and imagine. This is how the book could have ended. The end of Exodus. The people went to the promised land, but God didn't go with them. It could have ended that way if it weren't for what happened next. And to help us understand what happened next better, um, I want our kids to come forward. Uh, kids, it's story time. So kids, come on up. Uh, gather around up here. We've got a little story I want to share with you this morning. So you can find a seat anywhere along here. The kids, hey, thanks for coming up. There's a lot of you guys. Great. Are you guys doing okay? Yeah. Is it hard to pay attention to Pastor Luke talking so long? I know. That's rough. Um, how many of you guys have heard of the Civil War? 
Anyone heard of the Civil War? You know what that was? It was a war that happened in our country a long time ago, but it was, it was a really terrible war. And there's a story about a soldier who was, was drafted. He was told, doesn't matter if you want to fight, you have to fight in this war. But the problem for this soldier was that his dad and his older brother had both already died in this war. And he was the last one left in his family to take care of the family farm and take care of his mom. And so this soldier was like, no, I, I can't go fight. I'm supposed to, but I, but I can't. I need to protect my mom. I need to take care of the farm for my family. And so this soldier went to the White House to visit the president to say, would you please exempt me? Exempt means give me a pass. Make it so I don't have to fight. And so the soldier went all the way to the White House. And do you remember who the president was at that time? Anyone? He's on the penny. He's on the penny. Thanks, Jill. Abraham Lincoln, thank you. So Abraham Lincoln was the president. And so he's trying to see Abraham Lincoln, and the guards don't even let him inside the White House. Like, no, you can't go see the president. You're just some soldier. Like, the president's busy. We're in wartime. He's busy making plans. Go away. And this poor guy doesn't know what to do. And so he goes and sits down on the bench, trying to figure out, what what do I do? How how do I go see the president? I can't. What am I going to do for my family? And then along comes this little boy. This little boy comes along. Says, hey, why are you sad? And the soldier tells him his whole story. I'm sad because I tried to see the president and they wouldn't leave and let me in. And I I need to get out of the army because I need to take care of my family. And this little boy says, let me help you. The soldier kind of like laughs to himself. Like, what are you going to do, little boy? The little boy says, let me help you. And he takes him by the hand and he brings him back to the White House. And the soldier's thinking, I already tried this, didn't work. And the little boy brings him up to the White House. And you know what the guards do? They step aside. And the little boy brings him in the White House. And the soldier's like, what's going on? (laughs) And the little boy walks him through the White House all the way to the Oval Office where the president works. And he walks right in the Oval Office. And Abraham Lincoln is sitting there making plans. And Abraham Lincoln looks up. And he doesn't look at the soldier. He looks at the little boy. And you know what he says? He says, son, what can I do for you? See, that little boy was Tad Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son. And because that little boy was Abraham Lincoln's son, he was able to bring the soldier all the way to the president. And the president listened to the soldier's story and gave him a pass. And the soldier was able to go home and help his family and be there for them. Why? Because Abraham Lincoln's son helped him, right? And what Tad Lincoln, that's a picture of him, what Tad Lincoln did for that soldier is exactly like what Moses did for the people in this story. See, the people in this story had done something really, really bad and had separated themselves from God. But what Moses did was he went to God on their behalf. and He said, would you please Change your mind. He went, just like Tad went to the president, Moses went to God. And here's the point. If you are a follower of Jesus, do you know what happens to you? Your identity changes and you become a son or a daughter of God. And that means that any time of any day, do you know where you can go? Somewhere more powerful than the president's office. 
you can go straight to the throne of God in prayer. What the Bible teaches is just like what Tad did for that soldier, we can do that for others in prayer. We can go to God in prayer all the way to his throne room because of Jesus and say, Heavenly Dad, my friend is hurting right now. Would you help them? That makes sense? And so I want you guys to remember today that you have an amazing privilege. If you've chosen to follow Jesus with your life, you can go to the throne room of God and in that throne room, you can ask God to help the people who need it. All right? Awesome. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seat stuff. The story would have been over. But Moses interceded. He stood up for the people. He represented them and made his case to God. Let's look at some of these verses and then let's talk about this dynamic. Moses is talking to God, bravely going before God. He says, now, Lord, if I have found favor with you, please teach me your ways and I will know you so that I might find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And God replied, okay, my presence will go with you, Moses. (laughs) And I will give you, Moses, rest. Moses doesn't stop because that's not what he wants. Moses says, God, if your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. If you're not going to go with all of us, don't go. And God, how will it be known that, that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? Again, do you see what Moses is doing? He's putting himself with the people. I am one of these people, God. Would you go with us, not just with me? The Lord answers Moses, I will do this thing that you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. And what happens next is Moses says, God, God, let me see your glory. And this is a famous story where God basically says, you can't see me and live, but if you go kind of hide out in this rock, I will pass by and you can see my back as I pass by. And I will proclaim my name, my identity, my character as I do that. Now, it's weird to us because if you've been following along, Moses has been talking to God a bunch. But there's a difference between hearing God and seeing God. And so God says, you can't see my full presence and live. But God does pass before him. And listen to what God says and pronounced pronounces about his identity. This is who I am. The Lord, Yahweh. Pause, remember, this is the same mountain where this word, this word and name for God was first revealed. Remember, Moses was watching a sheep. God called to him out of a burning bush. It was on this same mountain, Mount Sinai. God said, I am Yahweh. And now again, he's saying, I am Yahweh. But let me expand this. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Slow to anger, not never to anger, okay? But slow to anger, impatient, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. 
bring the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshipped. And then he said, My Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us. And I love this. Go with us even though this is a stiff-necked people. This is amazing to me. Moses does not say, please go with us because I'm sure the people will change. He doesn't say, please go with us, God. And I know the people are, are bad, but they're not that bad. He says, no, you were right. They are stiff-necked. They're probably not going to change. But God, would you please go with us anyway? And why is he able to ask this? Because of what God has just said. I am abounding in faithful love. And so Moses says, because that's who you are, God, would you please go with us even though this is a stiff-necked people? God, forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. And the Lord responded, look, I'm making a covenant. In the presence of all your people, I will perform wonders that have never been done in the whole earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see the Lord's work. For what I'm doing with you is awe-inspiring. In other words, what God has said, we made a covenant, they broke it. I'm making a covenant. It's like adultery on the honeymoon followed by remarriage immediately after. Let's try this again. Now, again, one of the questions that comes up in the story is like, so, so God didn't want to be gracious? Moses wanted God to be gracious? Like God, God changed his mind? He relented? Does God change his mind? Now, there's a lot of questions. I know it can be confusing. But the main point, I think, is that God chooses to interact in a way with us that honors our decisions and our actions too. Best example I've heard of this is like a safety deposit box. You know where the banker has a key and you have a key. You need two keys to open the box. And that God has set up his will in the world. He wants to do certain things in the world. He tells us to pray for those things. He said, I'm going to act. And so it's almost like God has, like the banker, already put his key in the lock and turned it. And then he gives us the other key. It says, talk to me in prayer. And when we go before God in prayer and ask for him to work, it's like we're taking our key, putting it in the lock, and turning it. God is saying, yes, I have an ultimate plan. I'm going to do that, period. But in the nitty-gritty details of everyday life, I'm going to choose in a, to work in a way that lets you partner with that work. And so I want you to pray. I want you to ask. I want you to seek my face. And I'll respond to your prayers. What Moses did for Israel, Jesus did for us. Moses interceded on the behalf of a faithless people that in a lot of ways didn't deserve mercy. Right? A stiff-necked people that weren't going to change their ways. What Moses did for Israel is what Jesus did for us. Jesus came in a very similar way, interceded on our behalf. Said, God, 
They're a stiff-necked people. But then through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, made a way for us to be right with God, even though we are stiff-necked people. And then Jesus said, hey, you followers of me, you go out and continue my work in the world. And so what Moses did for Israel is what Jesus did for us, and what Jesus did for us, we are to do for others. And that's what I was just talking with you kids about, that we have this amazing privilege to go to the Father, to the throne room, and intercede on other people's behalf. And so the main point today is do that. We may not understand the nitty-gritty and ins and outs of how prayer works. Does it really change God's plans? Or did he already plan for us to pray? And he had a plan that included that? Gets confusing. I'm not God. I don't know everything. Don't know how that totally works out. But I do know that he says pray. Pray for others. Would you be like Tad Lincoln and bring them before the one who can do something about the problems in the world? And so, this is based off of what Moses does. How do you pray for people? If you're like me, and you're being totally honest, most of the time you pray for your own wants and needs, desires. Anyone here like that? Most of the time when I pray, that's just what I think about. The stuff I want, the stuff I need. Yeah, as we grow, I mean, that, that's okay. Keep doing that. But would you start praying for others as well? To bring them before the throne of God. And how do you do that? First of all, you speak the truth about that person or group. Speak the truth. Remember Moses said, would you forgive them because they are stiff-necked? He didn't belittle the things they had done. Don't go before God and say like, hey, my neighbor's struggling, but they're really not that bad. No, speak the truth. God, my, my brother or my sister, my family member, my neighbor, this is what they've been doing. And it breaks my heart because I know it's wrong. And I know it breaks your heart too. You speak the truth about the person or the group. But then you don't leave it there. You identify with that person or group. Remember what Moses did? He said, God, if you will not forgive them, wipe me out too. He's grouping himself among them. This is not, I'm so much better than them. It's exactly the opposite. I am one of them. So you identify with the person or group. God, God I pray for my neighbor. Because I know without your grace, I'd be in the same boat. And I know there's still sinful things in my heart that need fixing and mending. And then remind God of his history and his character. God, I know you created everything and you created everyone. And we're all your lost kids. And then you ask God for inter- to intervene in light of that. And so, God, would you bring back this lost child of yours? Would you work in their hearts in line with who you are and what I know that you want in the world? Would you bring healing to this person, this group of people? Because that's what your son came to do.
So you speak the truth, you identify with them, you remind God of his history and his character, and you ask him to intervene in line with that. In a few minutes, we're going to sing one more song together. Um, Hear us from heaven. It's a song about prayer, and specifically about praying for others and saying, God, would you hear our prayers? And so before we sing this, uh, we want to put this into practice. I'm going to give you some moments of silence, and I want to encourage you, um, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, to work through this. Is there someone or some group of people that's really on your heart or mind? When you just think about them, your heart breaks because you know things are not the way they're supposed to be in that situation. I want to encourage you just to walk through this yourself in prayer. And kids, this is something you can do too. If you have a friend you know who's in need for help, you get to go to God's throne room and pray about them. Go to your heavenly dad. So let's all pray together in this moment of silence and then we'll respond to the song in a couple minutes. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So we want to grow as a church. We want to increasingly become a community of Christians that not only prays for our own needs and desires, that's fine to do, but we want to go beyond that together. We want to increasingly become a community that consistently looks out for people in need. And when we see someone in need, we lift them up in prayer. We talk to God about them. We identify with them. We remind God of who he is and what he's done. And we ask him to work in that person's situation.